Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And it reads, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Beautiful people and welcome to the great church. It's good to see everybody today. That is a joy it has already been to praise God in song, to partake of communion together, eating this holy bread and drinking the holy wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus. The greatest thing in the world to celebrate is the death, the burial, and resurrection of our Lord, which is our salvation and which is our hope. And man, do we ever have a treat today, a fine brother in Christ as our guest speaker who's going to break the bread of life for us today in a most edifying way. He delivered two magnificent sermons yesterday that I would say were life-changing, frank, frankly, powerful lessons, and I expect nothing different today. I just want everybody to know, of course, he'll address us here momentarily as soon as I get out of his way, but also in the next hour, the Bible class hour, all of our adults will be here in the auditorium will speak to us again, and then we're going to have a fellowship meal in the uh, multi-purpose room here behind us. And I want everybody that's here today to know that you're invited to stay and eat with us. There will be enough food. There always is. And uh, we would love to have you stay with us and enjoy table fellowship with us together. And then, to our great blessing, Brother Chuck will give us a final lesson in uh, this series also this afternoon. So please plan to stay and hear everything he's going to have to say. I think after you listen to him here in just a minute or two, you're going to want to stay for the rest of these lessons. Uh, but let me introduce Brother Chuck Monan. Uh, he is in his fourth decade of preaching. He has served congregations in Michigan, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. He is currently preaching for the Pinnacle Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he can be heard weekly on 103.7 FM in the Little Rock area as the pigskin preacher. And you can ask him about the pigskin preacher thing if you would like to and let him tell you what that's all about. Uh, he and his wife Susan have two sons and three grandchildren they are very proud of uh, and I'm proud of him for his faithfulness to Jesus and the wonderful way he preached the gospel, preaches the gospel. So I'm going to get out of his way. Brother Chuck, the pulpit is yours. My wife said something years ago. We'd have... Uh, when we lived in Oklahoma City, we'd have area preachers come over on Wednesday nights and speak to our summer series, and I'd get up and say a lot of glowing, wonderful things about them, and you know, when I'd go to one of those places, they'd reciprocate. And she said, I finally figured something out about you preachers. I said, what's that? She said, you guys are in like a mutual admiration society. I said, well, we've got to be because nobody else admires us, so uh, we've got to stick together, Brother Josh. Appreciate those kind words. Uh, today is an interesting day on a lot of levels. I've been looking forward to being here for a long, long time. I think it was probably uh, upwards of a year ago uh, that Josh contacted me and said, would you like to come over for the meeting? I said, yeah, I'd be delighted to. And uh, I probably didn't have much of an ability to see into the future. We were in the midst, we, uh, at Pinnacle, 
For five years, we've been meeting in a rented, renovated roller skating rink. It's about what you think it would be like. And uh, about a year and a half ago, we bought a 33,000 square foot television studio, and we decided to gut that and renovate it and make it into a new church building. And we did, and uh, it was pretty spectacular. The first Sunday that we had in the new building was last Sunday, and we had uh, a record attendance of 476. Uh, spirits were high. Uh, folks came from far and wide. And so the second Sunday in the new building, I fly the coop and come to Tennessee. And I had a bunch of brethren that said, you know, really? The second week, you're already on vacation? I said, look, I've heard good things about these folks in central Tennessee. I know the preacher, and he's a good man. And I gave him my word, so I'm going to be here. So uh, uh, pray for us at Pinnacle uh, while I'm away. Uh, my colleague in ministry, John Phillips, I know is doing a good job bringing the bread of life to the brethren there. But it's a pleasure for me. To be with all of you. I've been looking forward to this, and I'm glad that we could make this happen uh, with God's blessing this weekend. Winston Churchill says, the positive thinker sees the invisible, feels the intangible, and achieves the impossible. Someone that's influenced a lot of people similarly, although he didn't win any world wars, was Zig Ziglar, and he said, People often say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing. That's why we recommend it daily. In just a couple of days being here, I can tell that this congregation has a great, positive, indomitable spirit. That's a good thing. Because there are a lot of churches that don't have any of it. They look at their shoe tops, they walk around with a defeated air, they don't really expect that much of anything's going to happen, and then as a self-fulfilling prophecy, nothing much does happen. But I can tell that that's not the case here. As you're looking to great things for our Lord to do in the great church, and what a blessing it is to be here. There was a song that was featured in the 2014 Lego movie that struck a chord with a lot of people. Now, let me go ahead and state, I'm not a huge Lego fan. Our oldest son was a Lego maniac. Uh, his daughter has become a Lego maniac as well. Here's my feeling about Lego. If you're walking through the living room in the dark, barefoot, and you step on a Lego, it will test your faith if you don't utter an oath. Usually I'm like, Charlie, why'd you leave that Lego on the floor? But anyway. But in the Lego movie, there was a song that captured the spirit of millions of people. It was written by a collaboration of composers. It was produced by Mark Mothersbaugh, which you actually know, even though you think you don't. You remember that group Devo, where they had the pots on their heads, whip it, whip it good. That's Mark Mothersbaugh. That was his group. But it was performed by the Canadian sister duo of Tegan and Sarah pictured here. The song was a breath of fresh air, maybe as much for its title as the actual melody of the song itself. Everything is awesome. Now, whatever you think about Legos or whatever you think about the Grammys or the Oscars or Tegan and Sarah, that's a pretty good sentiment. 
everything is awesome. Wouldn't you rather go through life thinking that than thinking everything's terrible? There's a lot of those folks, and, uh, you know, nobody's listening to them for much of anything. But in the spirit of this song, which was nominated, by the way, as Best Original Song in the 2015 Oscars, and that's them performing that at that ceremony, I was struck a while after that as I came across the title of a book by this guy, Canadian blogger Neil Pasricha. And Pasricha had written a book titled The Book of Awesome. Are you seeing a trend here? Everything is awesome, the book of awesome. Hopefully this could be the sermon of awesome, but I, I'm not the one to weigh in on that. But Pasricha had written this book by the uh, inspiration of a confluence of circumstances. He'd been going through a really dark time in his life. Uh, he'd gone through a divorce, and that's basically like going through a death in the family itself. His best friend committed suicide. Uh, he was just kind of moping around for months and months. He would turn on the evening news, and it was one bad story after another, one negative news item on top of the other. And he said, you know, enough. We need to think about some good things, some things that would make us thankful to be alive. So he set out to compile some of life's often overlooked and underappreciated pleasures, blessings, if you will. And he came up with a thousand of them. Publishers Weekly said of Pasricha in his book that Pasricha emerges a committed but inviting optimist, combining life's unending stream of bad news by identifying opportunities to share a universal high five with humanity. And I just love that. That's so positive. That, that's so exciting. That's so exhilarating. But I can't give all Pasricha's 1,000 underlooked pleasures. But I can give you a few of my favorite ones that he wrote in them, and quickly, here's that list. Number one, getting the first scoop out of the jar of peanut butter. Tell me you don't like that, okay? It doesn't necessarily taste better than the other ones, but you're there first. You're like Lewis and Clark discovering that jar of peanut butter. How about the moment at a concert when the lights go out right before your favorite band comes on? And you can hear them, <sighs> they start getting excited. That's good, because you know something good is about to follow. How about when your favorite sports team is in the nationally televised game? That was my boy Charles Woodson picking off one of Ryan Leaf's passes in the Rose Bowl. We got any Vol fans here? A few? Stay out of Missouri. Okay, yeah, that, that, that's rough. <laughs> How about this one? The smell of the coffee bean aisle at the grocery store. Even before I started drinking coffee, I always liked going down this aisle. It just smelled good. There was something kind of nice about it. Then I kind of figured out coffee probably doesn't taste as well as it smells, but you could say that about a lot of things in life that doesn't keep me from eating or drinking them. Here's another one. Backseat car windows that go down all the way. Those of you that are young, say under 30, this country was great when the backseat windows went down all the way, not part of the way. I mean, what's up with that? You know, is that keeping you from jumping out of the window? I mean, I don't know. I never did, even though they went down. The sound of steaks hitting that hot grill. 
You can hear that, can't you? You can smell it, can't you? Well, I went back there a minute ago to get a drink, and somebody brought fried chicken. So just let me tell you here, we're going to get through this sermon and the Bible class quickly so we can get to the fried chicken soon enough. How about this? When the dog is really excited when you come back home. This might mark me as a simpleton. There'd probably be a lot of other things that would do that as well. I am looking forward later this afternoon when all of our duties here are done to getting in my car, aiming it at Little Rock, and pulling in probably about 8 o'clock tonight because I know what will happen when I walk through that back door. There will be two dogs that will be jumping up and down. They'll be twirling around in circles. They'll be wagging their tail, and they will be thrilled that I'm home. Then I'll walk a few feet, and I'll see my wife sitting in her chair, and she will be kind of glad that I'm home, but not thrilled. I asked her one day, I said, Susan, I said, why don't you greet me like that? She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, why don't you meet me at the door and spin around in circles? She said, you're pushing your luck, little man. So there's that. How about this one as an underrated blessing? The school field day trip. Does it even matter where you go? No. I could have walked in in fifth grade and the teacher could have said, class, we're going to the sewage treatment plant. Yes, okay. Because whatever we were doing was better than what we would have been doing had we been staying in the classroom. And you know that's the truth. How about this? Dinosaurs. The question is, why do little kids like dinosaurs so much? The answer, because they're awesome. That's why. I would like dinosaurs too, unless one was trying to chase me and eat me. You know, I saw enough of that in Jurassic Park. That was kind of frightening. Here's another one. Flying over mountains. We went to England and to Rome a few years ago. And as much as I liked England and Rome and all the things there, I'm not sure that I didn't like flying over the Alps better than that. You're looking out of that window in the plane, it's unbelievable. You wanna talk about the handiwork of our God, go fly over a mountain range sometime, and you realize, indeed, great, great is our God. How about this one, hibernation? I, for some unknown reason, I caught one of those colds. I hadn't had a cold in probably three years, but I've been sick as a dog for a week. I mean, I've been taking chloroseptic up here. I, I've been swigging NyQuil like it's going out of style. I even was a little bit loopy. I got up yesterday between lessons, and I went like this, and I'm like, well, you got to stay away from that NyQuil. You know, you could be arrested for driving under the influence. I mean, I guess. I don't know. Under the influence of licorice, uh, apparently what it is, that you know, the green stuff. But I'm looking forward to getting home tonight, and I'm going to try to sleep for maybe 10 straight hours. That's hard when you get to my age to do it. But the bears are on to something. You see what they do. They just curl up, and they don't come out till the weather's better. I'm like, you know, the Lord puts some instincts in those animals' heads sometimes. How about this one? Fixing electronics by smacking them. Anybody know who this is? Hey, it's the Fonz, okay? When something goes wrong, I try to do that with my phone and with my iPad. You know, it doesn't usually work. So my wife, who knows infinitely more about these things than I do, she said, Chuck, just turn it off and turn it on. That works. And that works about 90% of the time for whatever it is that ails us. And finally, it is an underrated pleasure in life by becoming a regular somewhere. That little old man right there is my father. After 50 years of working in the auto factories in Flint, Michigan, 
he moved down to Arkansas with us a few years ago, and the brothers from church, every Friday, go and have coffee together. And he's like, uh, you know, Norm walking into Cheers. Norm, what are you up to, Norm? My ideal weight if I were 11 feet tall. Well, he comes in there, I think that was at Dunkin' Donuts, and he gets his coffee, and they recognize him and gets a regular. But that's a cool thing. When you walk in and somebody knows your name, they know what you're going to order, that's kind of nice. But reading this book got me to thinking. What list would we compile if we were talking about often overlooked and unappreciated benefits of belonging to God's church? I'm not talking about the Mount Rushmore items like the greatness of God and the grandeur of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Those are the big ones. I'm talking about some of the overlooked, underrated blessings about being part of God's family. And I think that there are a few that I'd like to share this morning because I suspect that you have them going on here in this congregation. Number one, the blessing of simplicity. One of the good things about churches of Christ is we don't try to be something that we're not. We don't try to put on airs. We don't try to Uh, enact some kind of denominational hierarchy or have some kind of of creed or manual or discipline or catechism. It's really very simple. And Longfellow said it this way, in character, in manner, in all things, the supreme excellence is simplicity. You want simplicity? Go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. It's a foundational verse for any church, but for especially churches of Christ. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and prayer. Read the few verses that come after that. That is who we are. That is what we're about. That is what it is that we're trying to do. I'm always amazed that people always think there's a better way to build a better mousetrap. In recent years, I've been traveling a lot with this. I'll tell you about that a little bit later, but this is an iPad. The only reason I got this iPad is because I wanted to read the local newspaper, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. They quit putting out the newspaper. To read the paper, you got to get an iPad. So now everybody's reading the paper on iPad. I didn't think I would like that, but it turned out that I did. But you always hear people, you know, book, one guy said this actually, books are going away. I said, what are you talking about? They're not even going to have books anymore. Well, what do you mean? Because, well, they got iPads. It's like, look, Einstein, books will always be around. Why do you say that? Because they work. Because they're simple. Because they're transferable. You can take them places. Guess what? If we have, uh, if the grid goes down and all the lights go out and we can't see, this ain't going to help you much when the electricity runs down. A book, just go outside and you read it in the sunshine. The things that are simple last. We're sometimes called in churches of Christ by religious historians, primitives. They do not mean it as a compliment. That is a pejorative insult. They say, you primitives uh, in churches of Christ, you're trying to go back and turn back the clock to 2,000 years ago. My answer to that is, yeah, yeah, we are. You know, well, well, why do you do what you do in church? Why do you have the Lord's Supper like we just did? They had the Lord's Supper in the first century. Why do you sing a cappella, or as one of my friends in Little Rock calls it, acapulco, because that's what the Christians did? 
Why do you have reading of Scripture? Because that's what the early Christians did. Why do you have the preaching of the Word? Again, early Christians. Why do you have congregations organized with elders and deacons? The early Christians did this. We're going back to the way they did things at the start. Jeremiah said, go back to the old paths and walk in them. But today people don't want to do that. They figure that there's always a better way to be more sophisticated, more complex. I'm telling you right now, simplicity in matters religious is always a blessing. Here's a second one, authority. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why do we do what we do religiously? Because we follow the scripture. I've had a pretty easy gig over 40 years of trying to convince people to obey the gospel. And I'll tell you why. I don't have to do a lot. We just open up the Bible. We turn them to different passages. They have different questions. We offer the scripture by way of an answer. And most people can see that it is through faith, repentance, and baptism that a person is born again of the water and the spirit and becomes a child of God. It's not as if I have to come up with some uh, different, new, convoluted doctrine. We simply appoint the, the scripture as the authority. What does Jesus say? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Paul says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have a young lady, I say young lady, she's younger than me, so anybody younger than me is young, she's probably 50, but um, her name is Esther. And I went to her father's funeral. He was an elder, a longtime preacher, a missionary in different foreign countries, but in his last few years, he lived in the little rural resort area of Clinton, Arkansas. There's a big lake up there, and people go retire and live on the lake. But as the brothers were talking about uh, Brother Henry at his memorial service, they said something that stuck with me. They said occasionally in elders' meetings, we wouldn't always be on the same page about things. And I'm like, the devil, you say. I've never seen a disagreement in an elders' meeting, not in the last week. But, um, you know, occasionally, you know, someone says, tastes great and less filling, potato, potato, you know how that, that kind of stuff goes. But they said any time... The brethren here at church would get sideways, and one person said it's this, and one person said it's that. Brother Henry would speak up with that kind, gentle voice, and he'd say, Brothers, brothers, what does the Bible say? They'd open up the Bible, and when they could see what the Bible said, that's what they would do. I wouldn't trade that for a million dollars, okay? Because when we have the Bible as our authority... It's going to keep us out of the ditches on either side of the road. It simply is. But when you get into a cultish situation, when one person stands up and says, I'm the authority here, you're not going to have that. But when God's word is the authority, you always have the moral and spiritual high ground that the world knows nothing of. Amen. Here's a third blessing. The blessing of honesty. With very few exceptions... Folks in the Lord's church are some of the most honest people I've ever seen. Now, do you got a few scofflaws and a few scoundrels and a few ruffians? Yeah, they sneak in every once in a while. But for the most part, 
in my experience, I've been around people that traffic in the truth. They tell the truth. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4 and 25. Therefore, each of you should put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In fact, the NLT, which is not really my favorite translation, it does say something interesting here. It says, so stop telling lies. If you're going to be a Christian, you tell the truth. Some of my biggest disappointments in my life in the church have been when I've seen leaders that haven't been truthful. But those people aren't really leaders. They're pretenders. Uh, They're masquerading as leaders. But if you want to be a Christian, you tell the truth. You tell the truth in every situation. You know, the truth sometimes is a bit clunky. It's a bit awkward. It can get you into trouble. Tell it anyway. Because let me tell you something. There is no future for liars. You look back to the end of Revelation. It mentions all of those who have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And it talks about murderers. It talks about gamblers. It talks about the sexually immoral. It talks about those who practice the occult talks about Ohio State fans, a lot of really bad people there. I'm I'm assuming that's in the original language. You know what it says? The only one it says, and it says, and all liars. It doesn't say all anything else. It says all liars. It's almost as if God is telling you, you tell the truth. Don't get involved in what the world is involved in, in telling lies, and telling white lies, and shading the truth. Just tell the truth. Most of the time in the church, you're going to run into people that are going to tell the truth, and that's a blessing. Number four, diversity. Listen to what the scripture says. He himself is our peace, who has made the two one (coughs) and torn down the dividing wall, Ephesians 2 and verse 14. Has that always been a strength in churches in general, in churches of Christ in particular? No. It hasn't. In the year that I was born, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King said, the most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. What was he talking about? Church. He said, everybody goes to their own church. Nobody has anything in common. Guess what? That is a disgrace. And that is a blight on the body of Christ. We did something at Pinnacle when we started it in 2018. We've just been in existence for some five years now. But we set out to be a different kind of church. Not not in terms of doctrine. We're following the old paths and doctrine. But in terms of who is in the church. I've been at churches that are all white. I've gone to churches that are all black. Or I've visited churches that are all Hispanic. How about this? How about everybody coming into the church and being one? of being welcome, of being accepted, of being valued, of being treasured. Can you do that? Yeah, you can do that. Is a little extra work involved? Probably. Are there some cultural differences that sometimes are a bit awkward to navigate? Sure. But here's the thing. I don't want to be part of a church where everybody is exactly like me. I know what I think. I know what I do. I want to see the diversity of God's creation. Okay, and I'm thrilled here that you got some wonderful people that, look, I understand how this kind of thing works. Okay, churches need to have white folks 
and black folks and Hispanic folks and Asian folks. That's the way the church is supposed to be. That's not the way the Klan is, okay? That's not the way the nation of Islam is, but it is the way the church of Jesus Christ ought to be. But it hasn't always been that way. Well, then that's our fault, and we ask God to forgive us of being separated and asking God to bring us together and bringing diversity to reality. We can do that. We're seeing that at Pinnacle. Friends, if you can do that in Little Rock, Arkansas, in a place that just a few decades ago had to bring in the 101st Airborne so nine kids could enroll at a high school, then you can do it here in Laverne, Tennessee. I'm convinced of that. That's an underrated blessing of God's kingdom. How about number five, humility? One of the things we've seen at Pinnacle is that you don't always have to have the best and the brightest and the shiniest bauble to appreciate it. As I said, for five years, we've been going to church in a rented roller skating rink. If you look down, the floor is wood, and you can see the bits of tape where they would skate around and do figure eights and stuff like that. Every Sunday, Josh, I sit near one, and I can put my foot right on that. And I got to tell you this, this is just a personal hang-up. I used to roller skate all the time. I was a teenager in the roller disco era, so, you know, go figure. When they're playing car wash and all those great jams. It was my dream to be able to roller skate backwards. Couldn't do it. Too uncoordinated. And we got one sister there. She goes to church with us, and she says, I used to roller skate here. I said, I, I got to ask you a really serious question. She said, what is it? She, I said, could you roller skate backwards? She said, yeah. I said, I can't stand you. Get away from me. <laughs> One of the things we've noticed, though, in that roller rink is that the church isn't about us. The church is about God. It's about pleasing God. It's about bringing people to God. That's what it's always been about. And when we've made it about us, shame on us. Listen to what the Bible says. As God's chosen people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I'd say we've been humbled being where we've been for five years. I've noticed something else. I bet 100 to 200 people have come our way and looked at us and gone to other churches because it wasn't nice enough for them. I almost feel like that's one of those filtering moments like God used with Gideon. Let's get the number down to about 325. If you're looking for a really hoity-toity high church, you're probably not going to fit in with us anyway. Because guess what? We got white folks, and we got black folks, and we got poor folks, and we got rich folks, okay? This, this ain't no country club, okay? This is God's church. And having that humility reminds us who is in charge. It's God. It's not in us. There's a wonderful story that the late Hugo McCord writes about in his old preaching career. He said this, In a coal mining community long before union wages, a Christian man worked 10 hours a day for $2, taking home each Saturday night $12. He had a devoted wife, and two small sons. They invited me for a Sunday dinner when I was doing a gospel meeting at their church. They had only four chairs. The father sat on a nail keg, giving me his chair. On the table 
was a dish of mashed potatoes with two hot dogs cut into inch lengths stirred into the potatoes. There was a jar of home canned pickles and a plate of corn pone. That was all. The father said they were too poor to have a nicer dinner, but he said, and I quote, I wanted our sons to remember that we had a gospel preacher in our home. That visit is unforgettable. Although I've been a guest at the White House in Washington, D.C. three times and was made to feel welcome by Mrs. Roosevelt, who said, you don't eat like my boys, Mr. McCord. The invitation into that coal miner's cabin is the most precious I've ever received. Here's something I want you to consider. All of us should be humble people because we have a great deal to be humble about. The only reason that we're going to be in heaven is because of Jesus Christ, not because of us, not because we're special, not because we're perfect, not because we're better than anybody. We're not better than anybody. But thanks be to God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need to be humble people because why else would we not be humble people when we consider our spiritual poverty in comparison to that of Jesus. And finally, number six, one of the blessings about being in the church of Christ is what we have always taught that this world is heading down to, the inevitable end of all things. It is appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. I don't know that since I have been a cognizant, aware human being, that I've not understood that truth. That is as factual as that you and I are sitting here this morning. That is where the world is heading. Do you realize that today a lot of people don't buy that? Ah, there's no God. We just made that up. The Bible, that's just a bunch of uh, fables made up by a bunch of creative Jewish folks. Uh, you know, we're just here for a little while, and then we die, and then that's it. Do you really believe that? You know in your heart of hearts there's something beyond this world. There's something going on because every group of people the world has ever seen has always understood that this is not all that there is, that we're moving towards something else. And in churches of Christ, I give great, great credit to the people who have filled pulpits, to my Bible teachers, to the elders, to the deacons, to so many folks who made sure that I knew that this life lasts for a little while, and then eternity. James says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while, and then vanishes away. We've always taught that in the church. I pray that we always teach that. One of the things, Josh, that I've noticed, though, when I came up as a kid, I was afraid all the time in church. I was always afraid. I'm like, well, man, I better do this or I better do that. The preachers back then were a little tougher than most of the preachers are today. Today it's, uh, you know, canoes and, and moonlight and lollipops and unicorns and rainbows. And back then it's like, hey, you know, I mean, there were, I mean, I remember sitting in the pew thinking, man, I hope he's not looking at me today. But here's the thing. While we might have been a little rough on the congregations back then, the preachers were telling the truth, and the truth is it is appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. 
And we can go ahead and rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic all we want, but sooner or later, death is going to come for you, and it's going to come for me. And then what then? If you don't have a good answer to that question, my friend, I encourage you to think about it because it's inevitable. It's coming. And it's always funny to me that people say, well, I don't believe that. Who cares if you believe it or not? That'd be like me saying, I'm going to climb to the top of this building as soon as we get done in here, and I'm going to just take a step out. What do you think is going to happen? I'm going to hit the ground with a resounding thud. Well, wait a minute. That might happen to you. It's not going to happen to me. Why is it not going to happen to me? Because I didn't tell you. I don't believe in gravity. Does that make a difference? Not a bit. The Lord is coming whether you believe in him or not. Now, whether you believe in him or not is going to determine where you spend eternity. It's just as simple as that. This is a fantastic church. You've got things going in a good direction. You've got a good spirit here. You know, anyone can see that. But here's the thing. We're not going to be judged as nations. We're not going to be judged as cities. We're not going to be judged as villages. We're not going to be judged as congregations. We're not even going to be judged as families. We're going to be judged as individuals. Romans 14, 12 says this. So then, each of us, will give an account of himself to God. The question for you today, are you comfortable where you stand? Are you saved at this moment? Have you put Jesus Christ on in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, you can make a change today. My friend, if you're here and you are a Christian, but you've wandered far from the fold of God, maybe what you need to do is return home. And like the prodigal say, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me as one of your hired servants. Listen, the father's waiting on his son and his daughter to come home today. If you're that son or that daughter, we invite you to come even now as we stand and as we sing.